you know, I hadn't done an Ironman in a long time and I was like, I'd like to do well at this. So I would, um, you know, go out and do these 112 mile ride race rehearsals. I was like, you know, I was, it was an eight mile warm up and then ride 112 miles. Like you think you could race if you had to run. I would do a few of them from time to time and the times would come in and the, you know, low five hour range or five, you know, just depending on the day. And so I kind of felt like, I was like, you know, I feel like with, you know, air, you know, putting on some aero stuff and doing this and that I could ride somewhere in the, in the five hour range in a race and I probably swim an hour and I could probably run 320 or something like that. And so I, and I was like, I think on a perfect day I can do 917 is what I came up with. Um, and I didn't tell anybody just kept it to myself. Didn't do, didn't say a word. I, I was like, only, the only feedback I will get is that I can't do it. It's like, if I say this to everybody, they'll be like, you've never done it before. You've never done anything close to that. You're crazy. So, You're, there's so no way. Yeah. I was like, the only way to be right is to do it. And I went 920 with a flat tire. That was Justin Dare, and this is the Yogi Triathlete Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in today for episode 113. We've got a great convo for you with someone who knows about longevity and sport. Justin Dare is a professional triathlete and coach, training and living the dream in Boulder, Colorado. But make no mistake, people, living the dream doesn't mean you live an obstacle-free life. But with experience, like Justin has almost two decades of in the sport of triathlon, we can learn to navigate those obstacles with more skill. Justin has been racing triathlon since 2000 and completed his first Ironman in 2001. He's been in the game long enough to know the highs and the lows of the journey, all of which have allowed him to maximize his ability to keep moving forward in situations where other athletes may be mentally sidelined. We caught up with Justin in his home following Ironman Boulder last month, where he placed seventh male pro on the day. We dive into his race day experience, his nutrition, his mindset, and his preparation, which like our guest Angela Nath from episode 111, was less than ideal having only run a few 20-minute runs prior to race day on account of a calf tweak 10 days out. But like most of us who have been in the sport for a while, we know that less than ideal is actually more common than not. It's our relationship to what happens that counts. Justin has a neutrality about him, which I believe allows him to have a 10,000-foot view and to make choices with space between his options and the emotions that may correlate with certain life situations. He's familiar with how it feels to go into race day and not be 100%. He knows what it feels like to mentally crumble, and he knows that he does not find success in redemption racing, but he treats each race as another opportunity to maximize what he has banked in body and mind. Justin found triathlon in college as a way to stay healthy, but I guess it started much earlier than that as he listed Ironman triathlon on a bucket list that he created in high school. Triathlon was the first thing that Justin found love within the process, and his motivation to get better in the sport was not caught up in what it takes to get better. After seeing Michael Lovato on the course of Ironman California in 2001, he had an immediate want to be able to race as skillfully as the pros. It's funny that he mentions Michael because... Michael was in the height of his racing when I was getting into Ironman distance triathlon in 2008. And I remember being on the course with him at Ironman Coeur d'Alene. And I clearly remember relishing in the grace in which he ran. 
Justin was a top American age grouper in Kona in 2004. He's no stranger to the podium, and he's the previous champ at Ironman Boulder. Returning this year with bib number one was something that he admits pushed him to finish what he started on the day. Breaking it down into little moments is how we get to those endpoints, you guys. Present moment awareness is the base, not the add-on, and it's something that must be practiced. It is the only place where we are at full capacity, and it is where our greatest performances occur. If you're looking for that mental piece, you guys shoot us an email and let's get the lines of communication open. We are here to support you. Our team of athletes is growing and we are accepting new athletes right now. Team Yogi Triathlete is kicking some serious butt already this year. Team members are connecting at races and we are planning on some team events next year. Oceanside 70.3 and Ironman Santa Rosa. Are you planning on doing those races? Then do them with us. All right, enough said. Let's do this, you guys. Justin is no rookie, and there is so much gold within his words. So plug in and listen up, because this guy is a professional inside and out. Without another moment passing, I am honored to hand you over to our chat with the well-versed and insightful Justin Dare. Yeah, Iron Man's just such a different beast. Yeah, I mean, I don't think... It's sort of like ultra running in the sense that you know, a hundred mile race is not like two fifty mile races. Um, you know, it's like six fifty mile races or something. Right. Right. Um and I'd say similarly with Ironman in the sense that there's um you know, there's there's an aspect of it that um your your fitness is there, like it's not as actually the intensity that's really limiting you to continue doing it. It's the fatigue and the breakdown and all those types of things, which um Unfortunately, you don't really get a lot of opportunity to uh, practice, right? So, I mean, even if you race, I mean, I've done, I've finished 40 Ironmans and in, it's still really not that much. I mean, if you look at other racing, like if you were like, oh, I'm a 200 meter freestyler in right. swimming, I mean, the opportunities to race and try things, you know, you might have hundreds or thousands of attempts or, or you can completely simulate um, the race pace and training because it's a shorter duration and Ironmans, I just, they're not really like that. I mean, even you, you gain experience through the racing and, and you do your best to be prepared, but in the end there's just putting it all together, um, on paper doesn't always line up in reality, no matter how, no matter how simple it seems. Yeah. And that's and kind of the, what I like about it. So what, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right. So how do you navigate it when, what was on paper is not adding up on race day, right? And maybe that happened on Sunday. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, it, it always happens. So that's sort of expected. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> I think you're kind of like, I mean, I've, I've written, there's there's a lot of times where I've written down on paper. I'm like, what, you know, under, under non sort of crazy conditions, right? Like no extreme heat or no extreme cold or no extreme rain or no extreme wind. What do I think? is possible on a course. And sometimes it's easier to predict that, um, either because there's more data or more history, you know, on Sunday there was, um, while I know the course very well, it's never actually been done in this, you know, it's, it's a new course, even though there's aspects of it that are the same, it's not, it's not completely the same other than the swim. So it was sort of, I was kind of, I I definitely thought that the, the bike course would run, um, faster than last year last year's course for one last year's course was, um, long and it was announced long because it had a point to point component. They were basically like, 
you know, we have to do 114 or whatever it was. Um, so that right there clears up, you know, three to five minutes or something of that nature. Um, but what I really thought about with this course is that the, um, the way that it flows, it didn't pull back speed. Um, the way that the course last year did, there was a lot of hard turns off of high speeds last year that were sort of awkward and they kind of added up if you're talking about, you know, two or three minutes or something of that nature. And, um, and I also thought that the field would be, you know, deeper this year, meaning that certain people might be, um, pushing the pace more, um, which I think really played out. You saw, you know, how fast Liferman and Sam Long rode, um, and some other guys, when I write out those numbers on paper, I have kind of like, okay, here, here's what it's been done. And, and never in, in any single race have I ever hit those numbers. Um, I mean, sometimes I've surpassed something because I didn't really understand it, but never have all three really lined up. But I think that's sort of like, you've always got to have, it doesn't mean that if you don't hit those numbers that it's a bad race so much as like, you've got to have a little bit of a lofty goal within everything in order to, um, I used to put it up to incentivize the training. It wasn't so much about the race day itself and hitting those numbers so much as trying to achieve the fitness to get to that level by race day so that you would have the opportunity to maybe try to do that. Right. And even if you don't, you know, that's okay too. I, well, I, what you're describing is, you know, having those goals and, and, you know, seeing what you feel is possible based on what you've been producing in your training and, and what you know about the course and things like that. But then what you do is you put that like kind of on a shelf, like you can still see it, but then you show up on the day and you roll with what's happening in the day. And oh, I for think sure. that there's so many, probably more prevalent in age groupers, which is why they're not getting to the pro level, is that they're so attached to that number, it paralyzes them. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think with, um, you know, sort of the standardization of distances, it becomes people try to, compare times, um, maybe more than needed. So, um, you know, a time at a distance doesn't really mean that much. I mean, some of my faster races are, um, irrelevant. I mean, way off the lead, whereas, you know, some of the slower courses, the harder courses, um, you know, I'm doing much better. And so I think sometimes when people have an obsession with the number, it's not really, um, taking into account everything that's going on. Um, particularly in this race, I mean, even I know it was this, this last, um, Sunday was one of the hotter days, but you know, the marathon here is just, it just has not ever run fast. And I'm, and um, Mikey, I promise you can go out and you can do it in training and it doesn't seem I'm like that slow, but I'm like, I'm a, you know, I raced it. I've raced it every year that it's had a pro race and I've watched the two age group races and I've known the, the, you know, Clay MG who won the age group race, you know, watching him race. I mean, I know, who, I know he is from Texas as well. And, um, you know, watch how it plays out. I'm like, it just slows down majorly. And you, and so I'll tell people don't pay any mind to your splits as a gauge of how the day is going, particularly if you've never done it. Like you might know if you've done it once that the splits, um, you know, are going to be a bit slower, but may not necessarily be indicative of how your day is actually going. Exactly. Because, you know, sixth place for you in a competitive age group, well, what, what age group isn't, isn't competitive, competitive right. 
that was a slow marathon. Like you ran four slow. Four oh eight yeah, marathon. Like, but on the on but the on the day, day it was you, a good marathon. Like but you, you had like the fifth fastest time or something like that. Fastest like, run. Fastest mm -hmm. run. But if I had got caught up in, I did a race four months, four weeks ago in Santa Rosa, and if I. I'm like, oh, I did that time in Santa Rosa. I'm definitely going to do it in Boulder. Like, I've been here. I lived here. I know the road. Like, yeah. there's no way. You have to immediately. And that's what I did was just take the first thing I did was like, okay, it's going to be nutrition, and it's going to be managing your your mind on the day. Mm -hmm. uh, anything else like numbers, for me, I just detach from. Especially on the bike too. That first bike loop was super fast, and I saw the people that were going out with me like crushing it, and I just knew. I just I just knew on the second loop it would catch up with a lot of people, especially the heat when that heat came down and it did. Mm -hmm. And I saw people falling off, yeah. like falling off the attrition, the, you know, getting out of the saddle and hammering those climbs back up to 36 and then trying to cruise on 36. And it's like, that's when you like, you're supposed to crest and like push, push it down. Like it's mm -hmm. now it's downhill down to 66. So I knew on the day it was gonna be like that. And then when you get to the run, I had a watch and I, looked at it i think for the first mile just mm -hmm. just to see but there were a lot of people walking sure. right at that first right leaving t2 yeah me too there were people walking yeah i walked that first hill yeah yeah so always, i was i was pretty rough yeah. i've never walked that all the years that we lived here i don't think i've ever walked that hill i mean we biked it and driven it a bunch <laughs> of times but never ran it and yeah that was a good stretch but i think the detachment from the numbers come race day especially on a course like this if you if you keep looking at it as for the 140.6 miles this is the time i'm shooting for because that's what everybody asks that's what everybody's familiar with right they want to know your time and how did that compare at least my family does or whoever's on social media but that aspect just gets tossed out the window mm -hmm. it depends on the course it depends on the weather it depends on who shows up Right, because there's so many more Ironman races now than ever before. Mm -hmm. So who shows up on the day? Like you can't get caught up in all of that. You have to manage your own timeline. So on Sunday, did you have gut checks where you're just like, okay, here I am right now. Like this is this is good for me, and then keep checking in. Yeah, I mean, I was kind of nothing really went very smoothly. I sort of um, was having some issues early on in the swim, and so I just tucked tucked in the back of the group and after quite a while kind of regrouped um and, and started feeling a little bit better came out of the water so about 10 11 days prior to this race i was on a run and um tweaked a calf my calf muscle i left i sort of landed on a rock that kind of hyperextended it and it was an immediate sharp bad pain and then the calf basically exploded and so um, so I had, hadn't been running, um, other than a couple of 20 minutes, a couple of days before the race. And, um, while I was running to my bike, it hurt cause I was, I was barefoot and I was like, oh man, um, cause I, I had kind of, I, I, I really felt as though this wasn't going to be a long-term injury so much as I didn't know if it'd be ready by race day because a week out from the race, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't run a mile. I could maybe jog it sort of, but I certainly couldn't break into a stride without kind of falling off onto a limp mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. So I was a bit concerned, started the bike, felt, felt pretty good for hundred and hundred to 120 K or so. And, and, uh, just really started falling off 
not so much nutrition wise, but hydration wise. I mean, I didn't feel like my energy levels were low. I just felt like I was really drying out and, um, and my heart rate was probably quite high. Um, my breathing was labored, even though I knew I wasn't riding very strong. Um, but I just tried to kind of keep it together. And as I came into to transition, I knew I was in a pretty bad spot. So when I went into the tent, you know, and I've normally I'm in a rush, no, even no matter how the race is going, I'm usually rushing through there. And I told volunteers, I was like, just keep bringing me water until I say stop. And so they kept bringing cups over and, and I actually had a bottle that I had, um, frozen and, um, it was about halfway unfrozen and I just chugged the whole thing and eventually got my stuff together, started running and within three minutes had to walk. And then I chugged the rest of the bottle that I had while I was walking and I got to the top of the hill. So ran out the, to the bottom and, um, fortunately felt nothing in my calf calf felt if, if it wasn't a hundred percent, I couldn't tell you otherwise, but I thought that I was, I, I mean, I thought I was so smoked that I wouldn't finish or, you know, cause I saw my wife about a mile later and I was like, I just told her I'm done. And, uh, she asked if I was going to step off the course and I was like, no, not yet. And I think really what was driving that was, um, uh, you know, I wasn't expecting to have the number one bib this year, but I did. And I just didn't want to step off a course with that. I felt like, um, cause I had kind of gone through my mind, like if my calf blows up, what is it that I'm going to do? And I, and I was like, if the pain isn't there while walking, I'll finish it because I have the number one bib. But if I had the number two or three, I'd probably step <laughs> Different off. story. But yeah, yeah. Cause I mean, I've seen, I mean, I'm not, I'm not one to, to hurt myself for the sake of pride. So I, I wouldn't have been willing to do that, but if it was, um, for a bad performance or, or a subpar performance, I really kind of wanted to, to stick it out. And what ended up kind of happening is about five, six miles into the run, you know, I had been walking the aid stations or at least slowing way down to take in tons of stuff. And I kind of rebounded. Um, I think I'd gotten enough in me that, I started feeling a little bit better and I wasn't checking splits or anything, but I just started running and, um, just felt, you know, kind of okay. I mean, I didn't feel terrible anymore and, um, uh, knew, you know, was getting to the, some of the more crowded portions of the course. And so seeing people I know is kind of uplifting. And then, um, I was, I didn't, I was being told that I was taking some time out of sixth place, but I mean, I was, yeah, I mean, probably 10 to 15 minutes down, but they were like, you're running substantially fast. And because of the heat, I was like, well, I'll see, I'll see what happens. I'll just keep it rolling. Um, but by the time I got to the 20 mile mark, the, the gap was still probably 10 minutes. And at that point, um, you know, I probably, you know, if, if it had been coming down, I think maybe I would have had a little bit more energy to stay on it, but I definitely sort of hobbled in the last 10 K, um, based on, you know, it's hard, it's hard to keep pushing in those instances without, um, you know, Steve Mantel almost caught me at the very end. So I actually ran like one decent K to hold him off <laughs> and back, like where it turned around and it was downhill. Yes, yeah. I was like, I can, I was like, I can get some turnover. Cause he was definitely going to catch me. I was like, if I don't, if I don't change the pace that I'm running, 
he will I'll fall from seventh to eighth. And it was out by the library. You go past the library to the yeah, turnout. past the justice center. Yeah, where justice it looped, center looped around. Yeah. Um, so maybe you know, and you not, hit crowds there too. So you hit a lot of people. Yeah, like, not not even a mile to go. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so I picked it up, and I mean, he was you know thirty seconds behind me or something at the finish line, and he definitely would have caught you. Yeah. So when you, I could have, I may have benefited if he had actually gotten closer, closer to me sooner. I probably would have run. <laughs> I mean, even if he had caught me, I probably would have run a better, better like closing ten k. Just having somebody to to, to race, to push you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Cause I, it was it was far enough at 10k. I was like, eh, I'm probably okay. And then with the Mali go, I was like, no, I'm definitely Game definitely on. gonna get caught. Yeah. <laughs> when you um, so when you went from the swim to the bike, and you felt that sensation, did any at any point were you going into the future of like, I don't even know if I'm gonna be able to get on this bike and. I wasn't really worried about, I wasn't worried about the bike. You were going to the, it it was, it was about the run. I really felt like if it bothers me, because even when it was really hurting me, it didn't, um, you know, a week prior, it was not really bothering me on the bike at all. Unless, you know, I was out of the saddle and really pointed my toe. And so I just avoided doing that. I just sort of stayed neutral footed, um, for most of my riding and I wouldn't really even feel it. So it didn't really come up then on the bike, but but, no. did, but were you thinking like, I don't know if I'm going to finish that marathon or were you able to just come back to the moment and, and be like, I just got to get this bike, to, just be in the bike. That's all I have to worry about right now. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't really, I, I, I felt like in the, the, the couple days prior in the runs that I did that I sort of felt like if, if there's a problem, I don't think that I'm going to feel it until pretty far in. I was like, cause I see, it doesn't seem to be increasing, you know, in the, in the 20 minute runs, you know? So I'm like, so if it comes about, it's probably going to be later in the run when, when there's nothing really mm-hmm. I can do about it. And I think also, I mean, kind of being out of the race at the beginning of the run, I knew that the run itself wasn't really going to be about anybody else. So, you know, if I was going to be forced to walk or, or drop out, it wasn't really going to affect like, oh, I was having this great day. Right. I mean, I was already kind of having to salvage a day anyways. And so, um, you know, I think I was a little more, maybe it took a little bit of the pressure off. I was like, it's not, if, if my yes. calf goes, it's not going to cost me something that I've, that I've sort of set myself up for. So you had that freedom. You had yeah, a little I mean, bit of freedom. Like, um, and I really, I, I, I really, uh, I was surprised that it hurt running to the bike. Mm. So I, I, I was not excited. Cause I, I backed off like I, in, in running whatever speed I was running towards the bike, the way it was feeling, I, I sort of turned into like a more moderate jog because of the problem that it was. And it could have just been like, it was a little cold and sure. And you, had you know, I, the wet I, you know, I was barefoot and maybe, you know, overextending a little bit. And so, you know, no cushion in the bottom and that little bit of support that I had in a normal running shoes seemed to handle the problem or whatever was wrong. Yeah. I think that something like that that happened, you know, before the race could have would for some people just bury them like in negativity, like my race is over, you know, weeks out from um, it even occurring. So as you were leading up to the race, it sounds like you were just kind of like, all right, it doesn't hurt on the bike. Mm-hmm. All right. I can. All right. I'm not running right now. But you were just managing moment to moment, day to day, workout to workout, like how you could best support it to lead yourself up and set yourself up for the best success. Now, there's like, there's a big element of mental fortuity, I think that goes into that. 
um, to not get caught up in that negativity. And would you chalk that up to just like your experience? Because, you know, you did your first triathlon in 2001. No, you did your first triathlon in 2000 you started. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you've been doing this sport for a long time. Has that mental strength just developed over time? Or have you done like certain techniques and things that you practice to keep yourself out of the doubt and the negativity and into kind of like, how can I keep moving forward? I think in this particular case, um, so I hadn't really focused on this race. I wasn't planning to race. Um, I raced, I put a lot of effort into getting ready for Texas and um, raced what I felt was very poorly um, based on my preparation. And so when I came home, I was kind of looking for what it is that I wanted to do. And um, I kind of felt like I wanted to race sooner than doing a, a big training block but there was only there was only six weeks in the in between the races and um two weeks into it i got a bit ill and i had to make a decision to to do the race because i would miss the cutoff by three weeks out and it was and i would originally the, the the idea was i'll train until you know that friday or so and see how things are going and as long as things are trending i'll, I'll do it but on Friday I was sick and I wasn't really training very well. And, but I still had to make a decision. Um, and I was like, well, I think I'll, I think I'll try it. Then shortly after that, um, cause my wife had been gone all week. She came home, she got really sick. Um, and so it was kind of dealing with her as well, like trying to help her out. And, you know, now we're getting into like two weeks to go. And then I kind of had like a three or four decent days and then the calf issue happened. And so I was like, it wasn't really ruining this amazing lead up where, you know, we're going to have this perfect day or whatever. You know, I was still kind of, I still felt pretty decent in this, in some of the sessions. I just was like, I'm not really sure what. You just kept having some stuff come up. Yeah. And, and the reality is, is if, if you've been racing since 2000, you'll realize that that's more common than not having some things happen in a lead up. So you're really like, you're mostly managing little things all the time. And there's no such thing as like a perfect lead up. There's just lead ups. And so you just try to maximize what you can and, and deal with it. And so since I've raced well here before, I really wanted to have that happen again, but I was prepared to be like in a position of maximize whatever you had on the day. I think when I raced Texas, I had higher expectations of myself, wasn't meeting them and actually mentally crumbled. Whereas I probably, even though it still wouldn't have been a great day, I probably could have had a better one if I had had a little bit of better of an attitude. Mm. Um, and so I think part of getting back out on the race course was trying to reestablish that of, of, um, you know, realizing that race days aren't specials. They're just days and, uh, it's, it's up to you to maximize them with whatever you got. And despite on paper, it probably does. Like if you had told me beforehand, this is, these are the numbers you're going to have on that day. I probably would say like, I don't even want to get up in the morning. But when having gone through what I went through, I was able to walk away from it being like, you know what? I, I don't feel as though I don't, I don't feel like I let myself down. I was like, I, I tried and, um, came up short, but I tried and, um, you know, for that, I've, it's, it's easier to walk away and move on to the next thing. If you know that you did all you could and it never got better and that's okay. Yeah. I mean, I think to look back and say, wow, if my, if my attitude 
had, you know, I could have shifted that, like things probably would have been different. So it sounds like a little bit of that from what happened in Texas fueled you to kind of keep riding with what was happening. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, I've, I've never really had, um, much success in redemption racing. Mm -hmm. So a failed opportunity, you try to replace with another one. I actually think it creates a downward spiral. Well, I think you can set yourself, you set yourself up for higher expectations. Well, now you're really trying to meet the demands of two races. Right. So you're trying to make up for the race (laughs) that you sucked at. And now, and you got to do well at the one that you're supposed to be focusing on. Six weeks later. Yeah. And so, um, so I think you've got to look at it more as, you know, I'm going to take what I can get on the day and try and maximize it. And that'll be that. We've been talking to some athletes and, uh, you know, obviously BJ raced. And how does your nutrition shift on a day like, I mean, you were kind of saying like how you felt like you were behind, but going into a day like on Sunday where you knew it was going to be hotter and, and you know that that run course is slow, you're going to be out there probably longer. Did you up anything in your in your plan your nutrition plan or did you just keep going at being flexible and seeing what you needed in a moment i mean in terms of like a caloric intake i I wouldn't say it's really that different i make a fairly strong concentration which i use in um so i ride a ventum and it has a hydration unit on the top so that contains about 75 percent of my calories from the start and then i have some sort of gels to go along with it. In this case, it was Cliff products, not sponsored by Cliff. You know, it's a legitimate choice. So in those cases, it's really more of how much water I'm gonna take on top of that. Um, so I, in this case, I just felt like I needed more water. I didn't feel as though I needed more sodium or more. I felt like I had all of that. I just honestly needed just straight up more water to go along with the calories I was taking in. Um, and I had added a little bit of extra salt, but I only because I thought my hydration level would be higher in terms of volume. But I'm typically like outside of what is in the nutrition that I do, I actually do, usually don't supplement extra salt. I've, I've tried very high extreme amounts of salt to see um, if there's like a tolerance level or if I can make myself sick and never found it. Um, on the same time, I never really feel like you know, going too low has ever been an issue either. It just seems like what's what's kind of naturally in the products is probably coming in at, you know, 500 to 1,000 milligrams an hour. Um, if if the hydrate, if it's not cold, probably lower if it's cold. I did, I did grab some, uh, you know, they had some salt on the course and I grabbed a little bit extra of that. But honestly, I was like kind of looking for anything. I was like, I'll try anything at this point. And my stomach felt totally fine. So it wasn't like one of those days where, you know, you're like, oh, I feel a little queasy. And mm. like, I, I felt like I could take in anything. So I was willing to try to, um, you know, be like, oh, I'll take in some salt, I'll take in more water, I'll take in, I'll just take in anything to see if it'll make me feel a little better. That's what I love about this distance in this racing. It's just, it's so much more than swim, bike, run. I mean, there's just, there's decisions every moment that are gonna, you know, keep you moving forward or start like your regression towards failure at the day. And you've been doing the sport for a long time. Mm-hmm. Your first Ironman, you did a 1255. Mm-hmm. Where was that? California. So it was uh, 
what Oceanside is now. Yeah. It was actually an Iron Man when it first started. I no, wish it would be an Iron Man again. We live in yeah. Carlsbad, just south. Yeah. Of, yeah. You know. So basically what it is, it was two loops of that. So two loops in Camp Pendleton. Why did two they two loops of Oceanside. I, well, they, they switched it post 9-11, and I don't know if that oh. had something to do with it. Oh, yeah. Because actually in 2002, they did Oceanside, but it didn't did not go on the base. Huh. And then in 2003, I think, it, they re-allowed it. They re-allowed it. But I don't know if it was like at that point in time, they just switched it. So when, so, you, so when you did Oceanside, you were, when you, it was a full, it was on Camp Pendleton. Yes. I, I believe it's the exact course, just two loops. Of, see, I think they should do it. I think there'd be a nice, honest, they, yeah, they tough course. They have one in Southern California, which mm-hmm. is, I mean, and it's such a hotbed. Yeah, and there's so many people out yeah. doing triathlon. Yeah, it's like Boulder by the ocean. Was it an ocean swim too at that point? Yeah, it was two loops in that protected area or whatever. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. In yeah, in the harbor. In the harbor. Yeah, it still harbor. is. Yeah, yeah. They tried to switch it to an ocean this year. Yeah, I saw and then that. They, I saw that. Yeah. yeah, they bagged it. So when you did that first Ironman, so you started triathlon just to stay healthy and fit. And when you did that first Ironman, like what was there? Was there? Did you catch what people say, like the bug? Not exactly. Um, so at the time. You know, I didn't really know anything about, I wasn't really, I didn't really prepare for it. That's what I would say. And went out and did it. I was starting the the run. Tim and Tony DeBoom finished first, second that year. And Tim had just broken away from his brother. And so he finished, I think, I think they ran 242 and 244 that year. And so that was, but that was the gap from the first to second. And they were they were they were probably mile twenty five and I was at mile one, so that was kind of. And that was it, the year that he won his first championship, two thousand one. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and as I went along the the boardwalk shortly after that, I saw these pros running in, and you know I hadn't really been to. It was only my third triathlon, and back then, I mean I think now there's a lot of people who who jump into long distances without any experience. But, but back then that was, I was pretty new. Like, and I, and I didn't have anybody tell me otherwise, Oh, you should go do this. You should go do that. You know, I had like zero mentors. Um, no one was doing anything. And <laughs> Which is why you didn't really prepare for this Ironman. <laughs> well, I mean, I was kind of like, I mean, I was distraught. I was in school. I was doing other things. Um, and you know, I just, I, I actually felt fairly decent for about 12 hours or maybe 11 and a half. It was the last 90 minutes. That was terrible. But anyways, when I was running down, I remember specifically seeing Michael Lovato, who I knew from Texas because he still lived in Austin at the time. You know, I just saw how fast these guys were going and um, kind of felt, I don't want to say ashamed, but I felt like, wow, people are really doing this very competently and I'm out here like having not prepared, having not given it. I was like, I want to be like those guys. I didn't do another Ironman for um, two and a half years, and my next one was nine twenty. So that was the. So you went home, did some homework, and went home, studied, <laughs> trained, got ready, and went back out and knocked some time off. Wow, what when was that? That was Florida. So I did nice. that with about a month prior to graduation. Um, wow. So how did you navigate that? So so because because I'll be that's like where I am right now. Like mm-hmm. I feel like. I want to take that time to just mm-hmm. digest a little bit and dive back in. So, how does someone, how does someone stay away from the sport yet train for the sport without racing? Because there's always- well, I mean, I think I was doing. You know, I did triathlons. I just didn't. But do, didn't do the Ironman. Iron yeah. I had actually planned to do an Ironman, 
in Utah in 2002 and there was a storm that blew the race apart and it turned into a, like a, they, we did like 70 miles and and then one loop of the run. And I, and I actually think that was a huge blessing. Um, for you. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I really think, I really think I would have overdone the bike. Not that that would have mattered, but I just think, I don't think I was ready yet. I was way fitter than a year before for sure. Cause I had, uh, you know, really started training. Did you have and a coach for the, no. for the, you just are still discovering things on your own? No, I started, um, I started reading, uh, I went to this place called the library and, um, <laughs> what actually is checked that. Out. Yeah, I know. Checked out Go- the travel. You mean, you mean Google? The, uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the, uh, where the internet wasn't yet. So no, yeah, I, I would go into, I was going to school at Texas A&M and I'd go into the library and check out books and they had this thing there where they, they may have this at all universities. I don't really know, but they were basically like any book that you wanted in the world, they would get either they would get it on loan or they would purchase it. So I'd put in these requests for different books. Um, and so they probably have to this day, Nice certain like extra <laughs> extra triathlon books or training books just because I requested them. Um, but there actually was a really a really surprising amount of literature because um, you just go to this section and I would see books like I wasn't even necessary like I'd be looking for one and then see all these others that were cataloged together. And so I was reading and doing stuff like that and then um, I took a internship here in Boulder and I was working for what was then, Inside Communications, and they owned Vela News and Inside mm-hmm. Triathlon, and and uh, actually they just repurchased the media side of of what uh, the competitor group, who was con- who was bought by Ironman or right, bought by yeah. WGC. So Felix rebought um, Vela News and Triathlete Magazine, and I think Vela Press. Vela Press, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, anyways, I came out here to Boulder, and um, I was pretty proud of myself as a triathlete after one year in the sport. And then I came out here and I was horrible. So it was a good wake up call as well. Cause I was like, Oh wow, there's all these people that are substantially better than I am. And then the internet started taking over and I used to, I kind of became a regular on Gordo's original coachgordo.com forum, which was a lot different than a lot of other internet forums. Cause it was really devoted to training. It really was, there wasn't sort of, he kind of, he either he, I don't even know if he intentionally sort of pushed stuff out or just it kind of had a natural tendency to be like, we, we exchange training ideas. And the thing I liked about some of Gordo's philosophies and some of the people that trended towards them is like, I thought that they, they weren't afraid to work really hard and they weren't afraid, they didn't want to take a shortcut to do it. So there wasn't like a, you know, a magic workout. It was like, you do a lot of work, right? There's no, there's no magic pill. You, you go, you know, you know, and maybe, maybe to an extreme case, just because he was such a proponent of high volume because of how well it worked for himself. But it was kind of what I wanted to hear. So it served my bias of like, you know, riding your bike a lot is the best thing you can mm-hmm. possibly do. And it was working. And so, you know, prior to, doing that, that final Ironman, you know, I was, I was doing things, you know, I hadn't done an Ironman in a long time and I was like, I'd like to do well at this. So I would, um, you know, go out and do these 112 mile ride race rehearsals. I was like, you know, I was, it was an eight mile warm up and then ride 112 miles. Like you think you could race if you had to run. 
I would do a few of them from time to time and the times would come in and the, you know, low five hour range or five, you know, just depending on the day. And so I kind of felt like, I was like, you know, I feel like with, you know, air, you know, putting on some aero stuff and doing this and that I could ride somewhere in the, in the five hour range in a race and I probably swim an hour and I could probably run 320 or something like that. And so, I, and I was like, I think on a perfect day I can do 917 is what I came up with. Um, and I didn't tell anybody, I just kept it to myself. Didn't do, didn't say a word. I, I was like, only, the only feedback I will get is that I can't do it. It's like, if I say this to everybody, they'll be like, you've never done it before. You've never done anything close to that. You're crazy. So, You're, there's so no way. Yeah. I was like, the only way to be right is to do it. And I went 920 with a flat tire. <laughs> so there's three minutes. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know. But, yeah. But yeah. I mean, not necessarily that I, I, I would have gone three minutes faster, but I was pretty, pretty close to, um, I ended up riding a little bit slower and running a little bit faster. So I kind of, but part of that had to do with, I never ran with any sort of distance or pace feedback ever. I only ran with stopwatches and hurry monitors. So I was like, I'm doing a two hour run with this heart rate, but I have no idea how far I ran ever. I never did. So when I was running, I may have been running in line with what I had seen in training, but because I never saw the paces, I didn't really know. That that takes an extreme amount of faith in, well, I, in yourself. Yeah, but I think that also, I mean, with the running or just the whole thing? The, well, not detaching from data, but specific, well, let's, yeah, I think yeah. the time having 917 in your mind and yeah. like, not listening to the naysayers, but also on the run to come to the final piece of an Ironman and not have any data and just go, you're just feeling it. Like, yeah, you've got to have some confidence in who you are as a. Well, I mean, I would see, I would see the, I would see the paces and races themselves. I just didn't train off of them. You know, I was just kind of would run. Um, I had, I I had, I had um, subjective numbers relative to the routes. So I'd be like, I was always big on, on building. You know, so I might do this loop that I, it takes, you know, roughly 30 minutes or something and be like, you know, loop one is 33, loop two is 31, loop, you know, to 29 to 27. Yeah. So I would know what were better times for that, but I just never actually knew what the distances were. But you're training your body. That's but, I, but I knew I was like, yeah. I knew how to pick it up and to build and, and I would use heart rate a lot. Yeah. Was, so you're training your body to finish strong. You're, you're feeling like the you, what you're doing, you're like fine tuning, like feeling the differences in those efforts. Mm-hmm. Like I think a lot of people are good at being at zero and then at 10, but like to go from a level five to a six to a seven, and especially like in the pool and things like that. Like yeah. to, the one pace people, like I just, I'm at, I swim at this one pace the whole time yeah. and you don't get any growth. And, and that's because, a little bit of like, it's kind of a chicken and egg thing. Cause you kind of need, you need to have good fitness to have different gears. So, Absolutely. so in the, in the beginning, you are kind of basically on or off, you know, and that in, in coaching some people that are fairly poor swimmers as adults. And, you know, I'm like, you're either swimming or you're not swimming. You're not swimming easy or hard. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that we need to take that into account when we're designing sessions because, um, you don't have feel for pace or effort. So we need constant feedback. So we need to keep the reps really short so that you can keep getting, constant feedback on the numbers. Right, get that and, feel, like 25s, constant yeah, 25s. Back I mean, basically, like, if you're not swimming 50s under a minute comfortably, like, repeatably, then I don't think you should be swimming further than that on a regular basis in training. Um, because, no, I completely because, agree. I mean, there's, there's no there's no point in going longer because you're getting enough aerobic stimulus. Right. And, like, just keep the rest short enough that you get the feedback. And your form's going to break down after 
yeah i mean the form as you go that's another thing too the kind of i don't really understand why in triathlon people try to emphasize form and swim technique more than fitness because it's it's very you have to have the fitness to refine the technique this emphasis like swimming drills are more difficult than swimming because mm-hmm. you're slowing down you're well um, but i mean they're they're isolating a component mm-hmm. they're very difficult to do it's what's what's better is to swim repeatedly short distances so that you can you can hold your swimming technique for sure but also that you can build your fitness because i mean if i i mean i'll watch people who um you know clearly are beginning swimmers or just not very experienced and they're doing drills first of all completely incorrectly and and basically wasting their time um because they don't they're not they're not engaging in what is the drill is purpose to do um and they're going so slowly that you know if if it's an issue of rotation or a catch or something like that you know their their hips are probably dropping so low in the water that they're not even maintaining a vertical position because there's no actual forward momentum anyways that's a bit tangential no, that's a no, that's, <laughs> that's a great that's a great concept because i think that that's so good for the, our listeners out there who are mostly age groupers and beginner triathletes and understanding that you don't have to go out and swim 2.4 miles at one time to know that you can swim 2.4 miles like no and 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 also I, but I, there's there's just there's these there's these sayings i guess in triathlon that i've never this kind of like swimming is all about technique it's you know um you know it's certainly not i mean mo- what's holding most people back in swimming is that they're not fit swimmers you know they're not actually conditioning enough um, and, and conditioning does not transfer. You cannot get fit on the bike and transfer it to the swim. You might set yourself up to become better at swimming sooner because you're aerobically fit in other areas. So somebody who's swam all their life has the potential to be a good runner, for example, but they have to actually start running to become good runners <laughs> yeah. and vice versa. If you've been running your whole life, you de- you're a very, very fit person, but you're not a good swimmer, but you have the, but you have the engine, but you, you then have to actually train in swimming and you might see the upside might be sooner and you might get a return quicker, but it does not, you, you don't directly train for mm-hmm. another event uh, in that capacity. Yeah, I agree. I and, agree with that 1000%. And I also think triathlon swimming is so different. People are swimming the pools majority. And I think triathlon swimming is different from lap swimming. There's things that need to happen. It's, and I've been on this a lot lately. It's just like sighting, like watching people, navigate the water and they've got their head down and they're going left and right outside. But in a pool, in a pool, they're perfectly fine because they've got that black line. But um, I just, I just, I feel like the triathlon swimming element is, is different from laps. And I think building that fitness is absolutely crucial to, to being comfortable out there on the water. Like if you know that you can, that you're strong enough and you can, you have the fitness, then anything that happens out there you can sort of, you can navigate it, right? You've got the fitness to complete the distance. Then you're just dealing with, I just need to see the next buoy and the next buoy. But yeah, we don't have to get into the whole <laughs> swimming thing because there's so many philosophies um, out there. So when you came into the sport, what was your background coming up? I mean, were you a swimmer? Were you a runner? Were you a biker? Were you none of those things? Uh, I was none of those things, but I, I wasn't, um, you know, when I get asked about this, I don't like to give, an impression of being like a couch potato. I just, I didn't, cause I, I actually always liked doing stuff. I just didn't do anything sort of specifically. And, 
you know, when I got into, into high school, I would run occasionally, but never more than probably three miles. So in, in Houston, there was essentially the loop around Rice University was really close to where I lived. And that's about three miles. And so very rarely would I ever run anything longer than that. And then the other loop is Memorial Park, which is about the same exact distance, but that was kind of far away, so I didn't run as often. But those were kind of the standards, you know, I just ran around those. Started um, lifting weights fairly regularly uh, in high school, so I was getting more and more into fitness and and these types of things. but, you know, I also did things like party a lot and smoke cigarettes and do things like that. So nice. I certainly wasn't on the street. All right. Row. Right. That's um, good. I feel like we have so many triathletes that are like, I've been competing and I went to the Olympic trials when I was four. And, you know, and I'm like, no, didn't yeah. anybody party? <laughs> no, I partied a lot. So when I got to college, I was, um, was about six weeks into school or something like that. And there was a... Um, a run group start uh, there was a run a run group at the rec center that was doing like an 18 week program to get ready for the Austin marathon and they uh they did like a supported long run every saturday they gave you a, a sheet of paper that had 18 lines on it with numbers right so each week was the mile it was a great training plan for me at the time because it was super simple it would say like 3537 Right. So at some point in time during the week, you ran three, five and three. And then on the weekend, your long run was whatever. And it progressed and, you know, fixed in like a easy week every fourth week or whatever the case may be. And so a couple things with that is I would sometimes get to like Wednesday night and hadn't started the, the three runs prior <laughs> to the Saturday. So I would be out running, uh, trying to get those in so that I would, I would hit it for the week. And then the other thing was that the Saturday run was, it wasn't early by my standards now, maybe 8.30, um, but then that was fairly early. So I would still go out on Friday nights, um, but my rule was that my taper strategy was I would only drink beer, so I wouldn't drink <laughs> any shots or anything, no hard liquor, so that I would have a clear clear mind you had to get up and early. good body at 8.30 in the morning. <laughs> And, uh, but sometimes I would like, I would have to do that final run. So I'd be, I would like run on the treadmill at 8 PM, go out and then wake up the next morning so I could go do my long run. But you so, had a goal yeah. and you met it. Like you did yeah, what it and, took and, to meet it. Yeah. And, but, and, and over time, you know, uh, that things changed. I mean, I didn't, I didn't find as much satisfaction from partying anymore and I was more interested in sports. So it's not like I kept maintaining this life, but I, that definitely was my social group. You know, my social group was a party atmosphere. So, and and I was doing this other stuff. And so the way that I kind of balanced that is I just, I wasn't, uh, I did most of my training Monday through Friday and particularly Monday through Thursdays. Um, And then I would kind of back off on weekends um, and still do something. I'd still, I'd still do some training, but I wouldn't, I never, you know, did long rides on Saturday or anything like that. And that's kind of, carried with me a long time like saturday is always my easiest day um, to this day because it's like yeah you know that's kind of when people are kind of mellowed out and so and here in boulder you know a lot of people want to go out and ride i'm like i'll let let everyone else go have the roads for the saturday and i take it easy and you know my wife has a is you know a monday through friday job so i don't really want to take an easy day 
on a Monday when she's not around. Um, but that, but that it, it's fallen in line with what I've always liked to do where I'm doing some of the bigger training while, you know, my friends would all be doing whatever they were doing during the week. And then they wouldn't know anything different on the weekend because I would be around. So it was always you- important to me to kind of be around yeah. Um, and be in my friend's life, even though my interests were sort of diverging. So was there a tipping point like where the, I mean, you kind of still have the same kind of schedule, but I mean, I'm assuming you're not just drinking beer on Friday nights now right. before a race. So like where, when was that tipping point where you started to see or feel that triathlon was something you really wanted to pursue? Um, I, you know, I, I think the, you know, I never had this mindset of, I want to be this type of athlete or I want to go pro. I mean, I've never would have thought that. I think with a lot of things that I had failed at prior to that, um, I was really concerned with the end goal. And here I was really just loving the process. So I just always enjoyed trying to become better. And I didn't really care if it took me more or less time to get better than somebody else. Whereas I think there were other things I'd be like, well, this person only has to work this hard to get this far in life at something that I want to be good at. And so if I have to do more than that, that's just not fair and that's not equitable. So I'm just going to not do it or it must not be meant for me, um, which is not a great attitude. Um, and so triathlon, I think changed me in a lot of ways because I wasn't, I no longer cared about the work that it took to get better so much as getting better. Like I just didn't, you know, and I really had no, no one to compare to, which probably helped. It wasn't like, well, someone else is doing the exact same training that I am and is getting better or worse results or something of that nature. I just was like, oh, yeah, it's what I enjoy doing and I'll keep doing it. And, you know, and, and then um, as I kept making, you know, I would make it to the next stage of progression as an athlete and be interested in going further. And then, you know, it was 19 years later or 18 years later, yeah. whatever. <laughs> did you did you ever have a coach? Or yeah, yeah. I, self, um, so I was I was self coached for a long time when I raced um, Ironman Hawaii in uh, 2004 as an age grouper. I was the top American, and after that, Joe Friel approached me to do like a sponsorship thing, and so he sponsored me as a coach for a bit, and I worked with him, and um, that was really uh, a good learning experience for me in the sense that. I really feel like he mentored me on physiology and conditioning. I mean, there was, there was, there was, there were very few people that were as dialed into that side of coaching than he was. And, and, um, for me becoming a coach later and working in things and, um, and as an athlete, I just, I really understood, he really was able to convey the process to me and how, how you train certain, uh, different systems and, uh, how you design workouts and what, what it is that you're going to do and creating race plans and then creating training to get ready specifically for that, not simply doing training, um, kind of hoping things will work out. It's like, well, decide how it is that you might want to race. Let's train to be ready for those tactics and those sorts of things. Um, and then eventually we kind of, we never had like a hard stop, but we just, I was sort of doing some things and I was like, I don't, can't really, I was like, it's a little too much pressure for me to follow someone else's schedule right now. I was sort of having to, to work a little more and I kind of wanted to have the flexibility to train, um, when it was more suitable. And so we kind of parted ways and I did my own thing for a few years. And then 
I worked with Cliff English exclusively for 2011 until the end of last season. And uh, we still talk and stuff. I just sort of um, became more inclined to just kind of follow my, um, you know, when it came to the day-to-day sort of training, I felt like I kind of wanted to do my own thing. Um, but he's had a, a huge influence on my, how I would perceive training and conditioning and doing those types of things. And he was always, and Cliff was, Cliff was very in tune and, and is very in tune with what's going on in, in pro racing. And I thought he really brought uh, a lot to the table for me in terms of understanding dynamics and, you know, really, really knowing all the biographies on people, which is something that I, I would do as well, but we could sort of key back and forth and he would remember, you know, how someone responded in certain races under certain conditions and us always being able to go back and forth on, um, you know, what we might want to, what we might have to expect and how we would respond to that and doing those types of things. So just like fine tuning your ability to race really. Yeah. And I mean, so sometimes, uh, you know, you, you're like, you have some tactics in mind and they're just like, they fail in 10 seconds. So <laughs> like, I'm going to go with this person. and then they're But gone, they gone. could, <laughs> they could work in another race yeah, yeah, against yeah. another person. Like you just never know. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the thing is like, the more you race, you know, you can get to know, um, maybe what people's tendencies are, or, you know, is this, is this person going to be a little bit more of an ally or not, not, or whatever the case may be, or they run well in these types of conditions or those, those sorts of things. So it's kind of um, cool. Like just to kind of get, like get more keen on. That yeah. I mean, the, the, the best races always happen where you're applying some sort of tactic the entire time. Cause you're completely engaged because mm. you're process oriented from the beginning to the end. Um, and you, you would, I mean, some of the the better times as well. I mean, I wouldn't even know what the times were until I've hit the shoot and look up. I'm like, oh, that's pretty fast for me. Right. Um, but but I was so engaged that I wasn't really giving it much thought. Yeah, yeah. No, I love that. That's. I mean, and that's when you're engaged like that, you're in that present moment, and that present moment is just such yeah. an essence and, of power. Yeah, and I and I, um, you know, I definitely, you know, there's times where. Um, you know, if I can, you know, maybe it's it's staying with certain people on the bike and things are really uncomfortable and I'm I'm telling myself, you know, it's it's worse on your own. Like you yeah. might be am I in, in some you know, you're like not everything lasts forever. And that's why it's really, you know and if it does, then you know, you'll have to deal with that later. But I mean sometimes you can be in a position where you're like, Man, we're going really hard and I'm kinda on edge. Um, and then later on, you're like, oh, no, you don't realize it, but you're like, oh, things have calmed down a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then later they get might get hard, you know. So um, I think when you're constantly staying in those little moments, then 180K on the bike while long has been broken up. And then when you're out on the run and, you know, you're getting splits to somebody, you're trying to hold someone off or run someone down or run with somebody, then 42Ks, you know, isn't 42Ks, it's you know, it's one checkpoint to the next of things of that nature. And so, um, you know, I think, you know, when, when you're an age grouper or when you're starting out, you're, you're having to, you're having to learn how to time trial and get the most out of yourself from that perspective. And so pacing and all these types of things are are really important, um, and have to be fine tuned. But, um, you know, as you get a little bit more parity, um, then you have to think about ways to, you know, outplay somebody who might, on paper be basically as fit as you 
Yeah. Um, so, you know, then maybe winning your age group. So it's, it's learning how to race, which is what you've gone through over mm-hmm. the last several years is like, it's not just to complete it anymore. It's not about times anymore right. for you. It's like, okay, let's get, let's get you more skillful at racing while Pushing you're out the there. Bike, exploding on the bike to see where I am on the bike mm-hmm. and be able to run off of it. So last season I didn't have my best runs, but I was pushing the bike because I want you just want to play with that, right? You want to discover like what your potential is. And like you were talking about earlier, you can't really do that in training. You can simulate some of the distance and you can, Kevin, no. you get a little insight into what could potentially happen, but nothing really simulates 112 miles to a marathon unless yeah. you do 112 miles to a marathon. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> to, to use another sport. I mean, if you watch, um, you know, if you are a football fan and you watch the opening weekend in either college or pro, but particularly in college, just, um, you know, the number of cramps that happen in the first week. And a lot, and because it's a hot time of year, people attribute that, oh, they're, they're dehydrated. I'm like, no, they've never gone this hard this. in practice. And then later in the season, they're going to cramp less because they're becoming, they're not, you know, they're more seasoned to the demands of competing. You know, they are giving their all, you know, on that O-line. And I think that's what kind of what happens, you know, trying to blow yourself up in a race. I mean, you can try and blow yourself up in training and you might not never get to that, you know, special place, but you get a race dynamic and you can really see what you're capable of. And and so I do think it's important to take those opportunities. And and sometimes you might surprise yourself because what you thought was blowing yourself up, you know, maybe you still actually run pretty well. Exactly. It's really more about like, staying as engaged as if there is no run and not thinking like extrapolating out, oh, if I'm going this hard now, I won't be prepared for later, as opposed to being like, I'm going hard now and that's all that I really need to be focused on in the moment. Yeah, absolutely. It's easier said than done. I mean, I don't don't say that from a position of like, that's what I'm getting done all the time. I'm just saying like- You're just like in the moment all the time. If and when I do have a good moment, it's probably because I was capable of doing, you know, some level of that on the day. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great place to to wrap yeah. it up. What do you think? Yeah. Awesome. Justin, thank you so much. Yeah, Appreciate thanks for you. Having me. Justin, thank you. Letting us come over. Episode 113 in your awareness. Thank you so much, you guys. We are so fired up to take this journey with you. We are in deep thanks of your listenership. Patreon support team of athletes, M21 Revolution Warriors, and everyone else that makes up this powerful community of awake and ready humans. While you're fired up, get over to yogitriathlete.com and check out the show notes for this episode to connect with Justin and to snag yourself one of our brand new YT technical trucker hats from Boco Gear. We have a limited supply and BJ just posted an actual picture of the prototype today. In a nutshell, they are badass. Thank you, Boco. Keep showing up for your training, your racing, your dreams, and keep showing up for this podcast. Together, you guys, we are on a mission to create a better world, and it starts within each one of us. It starts with believing that anything is possible because, damn it, it is. The only limitations we have are the limitations in our own thinking. There is no lack in this universe, and abundance in all things is our divine right in this life.